All right. Welcome, everybody. Happy New Year. It's the 2nd of January, 2019, and uh, I'm once again in Massachusetts and for the podcast To Hell and Back, and uh, starting another year. I can't believe I've been doing this for a year and a couple of months, I guess, um, and today I think is podcast number 39, and uh, the focus of today will be on... Um, some aspects of regulating emotions. It'll be the last of a series on various tools or skills for regulating emotions. And then on my next podcast, I'll be moving into skills for uh, affecting relationships, making changes in relationships, uh, asking for what you want, uh, saying no in relationships, trying to preserve your self-respect in relationships, and so on. Um, coming again from DBT's skills package, and that'll be the interpersonal skills. But just to let you know, those of you who are listening to this in a timely way, um, I won't be doing it until... I'm away for two weeks now. I'll be away one week. I'm teaching an intensive workshop in DBT in Brooklyn um, next week, and then the following week I'll be on a vacation and then I'll be uh, doing my next podcast um, three weeks from today, which that must make it the 23rd. So um, I also want to say, um, you know, I want to, those of you who've listened to a lot of these probably know that originally when I started doing the podcasts, in many ways I had no idea if anybody would listen. And I just wanted, uh, they were really uh, kind of selfish in nature in that I wanted to make myself think more deeply about these topics and how people get in and out of hell. Uh, And I knew if I had a podcast every week and I had to talk for an hour, I would have to think more deeply about things. And it it has accomplished that purpose. It's, It's an endless source for me of getting me to think about stuff that I'm sort of thinking about already, but it makes me think more about it. Um, and, uh, but then little by little, I've heard from people and now I hear from more people and I love hearing from people. So if you do want to write me with any feedback, uh, about this podcast, I'm at uh, c.robert.swenson at gmail.com, um, or through my website, I think you can leave something. And, uh, I've been hearing from people, including from different countries, and it's extremely um, meaningful to me. I hear from therapists. I hear from people who have been patients in DBT or people who wonder about being patients in DBT, people who are family members. So it's just what I hoped for, um, that people would be listening like this. Um, so let me see. Here's the problem today. I'm trying to be skillful about how I handle this. My mind is flooded with things I want to tell you about, but I also want to finish today with emotion regulation. Um, and I can always revisit certain topics. Um, but uh, things I want to uh, talk with you about today is a little sort of summary overview of the model since I've been through a number of, uh, of sessions of these things, looking at the toolbox of how do you regulate your emotions? What's, how do we change a relationship to emotions? And so I want to do a kind of a quick overview of the model, get back to it. It's been several weeks since I talked to you, though, for some of you that listen in other ways and downloaded, maybe it doesn't seem like that. Um, I want to talk a little about uh, sleep. 
insomnia. Some of the tips for that that come out of the DBT manual, which also basically carry the, the standard tips in the field, but it, it occurs to me that lots of people might not actually know these or know or try them. And sleep is such a huge problem. Um, then I want to talk about the most important topic today is mindfulness of emotions, bringing together these two constructs that are so interesting and complex, each of them, mindfulness on the one hand and uh, emotions on the other hand. What is it that mindfulness can do uh, when you are mindful of emotions? And I want to talk about that. Um, and it comes out of the skills manual, DBT skills manual, but it also just comes out of my own experience um, and my way of talking about it. So let's see. Um, the model, let me just say about the model, and I want to do this quickly, but uh, in, in a way that I'm always trying to look for both lots of details to give, but then also a framework within which to give them so that people can remember things well and organize things well in their own minds. So you might think of it this way that emotions, uh, you might organize your understanding of an emotion or a model of what an emotion is because it's a multi-component phenomenon. Um, is that it's a, uh, a, that there's an input, a throughput, and an output. Sort of like systems theory. Um, and what's the input for emotions? Well, the input is what arrives at the front end of an emotion before, you might say, before a certain emotion has taken shape. And anything that's an input is something you potentially could do something about to modify your emotions, your ongoing emotional experience. And uh, the fact that there's so many things like this, it means that some, some, some of the options can get lost just in a flood of how many things there are but think about it. I mean, you know yourself. You know yourself which inputs are the ones that probably um, influence your emotional experiencing the most. Uh, so what's at the front end? Um, well, there are the, all these factors that render a person vulnerable to emotions. So, and they've been gone over them in a different podcast. Um, so there is. Uh, you could sort of al almost have a profile uh, how are you doing with respect to sleep since getting too little sleep or too much sleep or interrupted sleep or an altered sleep cycle? Any of these sleep problems can leave you tired, uh, logy, irritable, low tolerance, high impulsivity, and just having uh, trouble regulating emotions in a kind of a solid way. What about eating? similar, different phenomenon, but similar, I could say the similar thing is eating too much, eating too little, eating on an odd schedule, eating in an unbalanced way. Um, all these things can leave you uh, more tired and uh, fatigued and worn out. They can leave you uh, more hyped up, uh, depending what you're eating uh, or whether you're starving yourself too much. Um, all these things. So so eating, balanced eating is critical. And if you don't have good sleep and you don't have balanced eating, it's already kind of predictable that when something comes along that sets off an emotion, that you're already more vulnerable to have more trouble regulating that. 
What about exercise? It's a similar thing. And the more that gets studied about exercise, the more we know this is the case, that to be sedentary sets the stage for another vulnerability. To exercise regularly, 20, 30 minutes, several times a week, um, walking, running, swimming, biking, yoga, dancing, tennis, anything that gets you moving and gets your heart pumping a little faster. These things are just really important. Um, it just helps you regulate your mood. Uh, so that's another one. Uh, so uh, if you're not getting much exercise and you're not eating in a nutritious way or a healthy way and you're not getting the right amount of sleep, um, and, and another one is, are you good taking care of your body, your, any physical illness or any injuries or symptoms? Are you attending to those? Because if you're not, those things start to become another source of trouble. Um, and uh, uh, so we've got sleep, eating, exercise, physical illness. Uh, if you're using substances, meaning you know drugs or alcohol, um, in ways that are not healthy, um, that are too much, that bring about addictions, or that are used to regulate emotions. Unfortunately, those very conditions uh, where um, they're being used to regulate emotions are the conditions that set the stage for worse emotions. Um, so that's another factor. Are you, are you trying to push yourself a little bit each day to do things, uh, to take care of things that are a little on the edge, things that you're neglecting, avoiding, etc.? You're not, you're not uh, building mastery as we think about it. What about uh, are you doing things that generate positive emotions because that makes you more resilient? Uh, and all the things I'm mentioning could be looked at from two angles. Either the problem with them render you more vulnerable to kind of a forest fire of emotionality, uh, or you could look at it the other way and say, to take care of each of these things will make you more resilient in the face of emotions. Um, plant previewing and coping ahead with things that are coming your way because we're always, every one of us is facing all these things that come down the conveyor belt of life that we need to take care of. And when we don't plan ahead and we don't cope ahead, we don't think ahead, of how we're going to do things, they kind of smack us in the face when we least expect it. Or, so uh, all these things are at the front end, are at the input level of emotions. Another thing at the input level is then at that point, something comes along that's like the spark that sets off the emotion. And that we call the prompting event or triggering event. So in, the, in this context of all of these factors that can make us more or less resilient, more or less vulnerable, comes something along that, you know, uh, is, is sets off uh, an emotion in us. Somebody rejects us. Somebody insults us. Somebody just looks the wrong way at us at given, given, on a given day. Um, we face too much loneliness and emptiness. We face too much to do. We're overwhelmed by things. Whatever it is that comes our way that becomes the prompting event is itself input. And so just like we can take care of these other factors that I was just talking about, we can take care of prompting events. There are certain prompting events that might be better off to be avoided if possible or only faced when you are ready to face them. And instead, we sometimes just expose ourselves to things when we, when we kind of know in the back of our minds we're not ready for it. So there's taking care of prompting events, uh, modifying them, handling them differently, 
avoiding some, having good timing for when we face them. And then the other thing about a, a prompting events that we can do something about is what do we pay attention to? Sometimes, you know, somebody, um, you know, some, somebody does something like, you know, let's say one of my kids does something that uh, worries me, upsets me, uh, and I start worrying or ruminating and, and thinking, oh no, or oh, this poor kid's never going to have a life or something like that. That's really might be kind of exaggerated, but it is, it's me focusing in on one aspect of a prompting event, on one part of a prompting event, and highlighting that and letting my mind uh, get carried with it. An alternative would be to see that one piece in, in a larger perspective. I could say, well, wait a minute. Now that son I'm thinking about is 20 years old. And you know what? He has a healthy body and he has a life and he's an interesting person and he's engaged in this or this. Um, and, uh, so w- what am I thinking? Because since I know lots of people in my, through my work and sometimes my personal life where people have nowhere near that many advantages or just sort of resources or possibilities for norm, normal functioning on a daily basis. So then I could, I can modify my experience of the prompting event by looking at another part of it or putting it in a different context or different perspective because sometimes what does us in, what often does us in is that we see a prompting event and part of a prompting event in isolation and it is the darkest part of the prompting event. And uh, so, you know, if we are mindful of another part or mindful of a different way of looking at it, then we can um, take in, register, pay attention to the prompting event in a different way. So how we pay attention and what we pay attention to is a huge factor about what kind of emotion gets flaring up in us from that moment on. So that's another thing. Now, this next thing you might not think of as input, but you can think of it as input. It's kind of on the boundary because it is in response to the prompting event. It's the thoughts we have, the interpretations, the way we um, perceive, the way we encode, the meaning that comes to us from the prompting event. The prompting event is just an event. It might be a dream we wake up in the morning with. It might be somebody that doesn't contact us. Whatever it is, there's a prompting event, and then we attach uh, interpretations to it. And those interpretations now could be considered input. They're on the threshold of an emotional experience. Sometimes we have an emotional experience, and it generates the, the thoughts. So they kind of go hand in hand most of the time, the thoughts and then the emotional experiencing. So that's another thing. So think of how many things I've just said, if you aren't snowed too much by it, that I'm, I must have listed 10 or 12 things that are like uh, vulnerability factors or resiliency factors. And then there's the prompting event and how we, in, how we uh, experience it, how we uh, register it, how we attend to it. And then there's the thoughts that arrive uh, triggered by the prompting event uh, based on our prior life experiences. And all of that is before the sort of formally what we usually think of as an emotion. So there's all those things and every single one of them could be modified. Now, an emotion gets going in us. And uh, now it's happening and it's happening 
with a um, in a systemic holistic way several aspects at the same time of our functioning because 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 uh, an emotion comes in across kind of our whole being and it changes our brain some aspect of our brain and it changes our peripheral nervous system in other words the parts of the nervous system that go out to the body uh, the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system is immediately different um, our hormonal systems are activated depending on the situation uh, and the brain uh, our bodily functioning in other ways is also changed you know we our heartbeat goes up or down our breathing goes up or down we start to sweat or not our metabolism changes our our gut our gut changes our, our gastrointestinal functioning and our liver change I mean just everything changes right it's a little overwhelmingly complex um, these are all pretty much most of these things I'm saying are mostly invisible to us when they happen unless we stop and ask ourselves gee is my heart beating faster um, you know and and is, is this happening do I'm having am I having tension here or there in my body so all these things happen in the body, in the brain, in the nervous system, in the circulatory system. And then in addition, we have the actual subjective experience, and this is a conscious experience, of feeling something. We have a feeling. We have a, a more or less intense feeling. And along with that, we also typically have an urge to act in a certain way that goes with that feeling which is part of the wiring that we seem to have in our, uh, from our evolution, um, that we, we have action tendencies to go in one direction or another. Notice that what we formally call emotions are actually made up of just a bunch of things that are mostly in the body. And that's really what we end up calling emotions. And then we attach meaning to those emotions, too, uh, from the past. Uh, and, and we have thoughts that trigger the emotions, emotions trigger the thoughts. And then after that action urge, usually instantaneously and then over time, we act in response to the emotions that we're experiencing. So we act either by saying something, having a tone of voice, by showing something with our body language, by showing something with our facial expression, by overtly acting and doing something. You know, so all of these things. Um, are subject to potential change. So it's just like a, when people feel stuck with their emotions, say, this emotion will never go away. I'm stuck with this emotion. Things are not changing. Well, guess what? Even if you don't know any of these things, actually things are always changing and emotions are changing. But it's a little bit like dark clouds in the sky that don't go away for a while. You look at them and then you look out at them again in an hour and you say, oh my God, we're still, it's a still dark and cloudy day. But guess what? If you were up close to the clouds, everything is different, and emotions are the same way. They are modifying. They are changing. And you can take some proactive steps to modify them in the direction that you'd like to modify them because uh, everything is related to everything. So that's what I wanted to say about the model because I want you thinking like that. I want you thinking like, oh, yeah, this emotion thing. It, there's so many inter in interdependent components that you can change it in so many ways and if you change one thing you change them all next I did want to talk a little about sleep um, 
And uh, why do I want to do that? Well, I really thought about this because in some ways I think this is kind of boring, but in fact, it's so important and I haven't gone over it. And people out there who don't have easy access or don't take the trouble to get access to things that we might call sleep hygiene or tips for sleeping when you are a bad sleeper. I just want to uh, go over uh, a bunch of things um, that I hope will be practical for some of you. Insomnia is just a killer. Those of you who have insomnia know that. I mean, it's just a wipeout and it really changes everything. And it's hard to imagine having chronic insomnia and not having emotion regulation problems. Um, so here's, here's the tips that come right out of the literature. First, as hard as this can be, and I know this within my own family, there are a couple people that have a lot of trouble with this. Um, try and try and try to develop and follow a consistent schedule for sleep. You know, you don't have to be rigid, rigid about it, but if you, if you can sleep more or less, go to sleep at a similar time each night and get up at a more or less similar time in the morning, with exceptions, of course, based on circumstances, but including on the weekends, um, that there's a routine that isn't just a, a good thing because of it meets some criteria of regularity, but it really does sort of set the stage for being kind of more solid and solid in regulating emotions. Another thing has to do with the conditions for sleep. I mean, a lot of what sleep hygiene is, is you can't make yourself go to sleep. And people massively in our country overuse sleep medications because sleep just isn't working out. And there are so many sleep medications, they get marketed so heavily by pharmaceutical companies um, that you try everything. And some of them have really unfortunate side effects. Um, but um, here's some of the conditions. The bed, try to treat your bed and your bedroom, if you have the luxury to have a separate bedroom, um, which you probably do, but some people don't. But treat your bed or your bedroom, treat your sleeping place as just for sleeping as much as possible. Don't use your sleeping place for also the place you eat and the place you watch television and the place that you use your computer and the place that you go and have conversations. I mean, if you don't have much space, it's understandable. But And, and of course, lots of us do these things because people have TVs in front of their beds. But, you know, keeping screens on at night, um, communicating in, late at night when it's sort of your bedtime is a killer for sleep. I mean, you get information into your brain that then needs to be processed, whether you like it or not, and it gets uh, light into your brain. Uh, it gets stimulation into your brain. Um, all of those things make it harder to go to sleep. Of course, you want to avoid caffeine anywhere close to bed, uh, nicotine, alcohol, um, heavy meals, late in the day exercise, all of these things uh, activate the brain and body in various different ways that make it just not time to go to sleep. When you're ready to go to sleep, this won't come as a big surprise, <laughs> turn off the light. A lot of people don't. They have the light off, but their phone is on and they're looking at stuff. Um, turn off the light. Uh, keep the room quiet. Uh, darken the room, uh, have a reasonable temperature that you're comfortable with, 
And now you've got conditions for going to sleep. Now you lay down, right? You've got low stimulation. You've got an intention to go to sleep. You have tried not to do some of those various things that really keep activating the brain and keep working against the sleep cycle. And then you turn off the lights. Now you have to give yourself time to fall asleep, which a lot of people don't. Um, you need to give yourself a half an hour or even an hour lying there. And of course, that in our age, where there's so much stimulation and it's so easy to find interesting things to look at and do, um, it's like hard just to lie there. Lie there um, and just notice, you know, what's passing through your mind. Let your body settle down. Curl up in a comfortable position. And uh, if you need a stuffed animal or if you have a person that's your stuffed animal to hang on to, that's the best way to go to sleep. Then you do those things. But you then you let yourself have some time to fall asleep. If it doesn't work and you keep being awake and you have to resist the urge to go to go quickly and do other things, uh, and you have to watch out and ask yourself, uh, am I calm enough to go to sleep? Because that's one, that's one direction. Or am I anxious? And that's interfering with going to sleep. I'm ruminating. I'm, think, I'm worrying about things about tomorrow or about what happened today or the past or the future. I'm getting my mind all worked up about things that, you know, I am upset about or worried about, ruminating about. But they do interfere with sleep. There's no doubt about it. So uh, also there's the anxiety about whether I'm going to go to sleep or not. And that when I've worked with people with insomnia, that's a killer because you lie there and after five minutes you start thinking, oh shoot, oh no, I'm not going to go to sleep. Oh no, it's going to be another bad night. Oh, I'm going to be wiped out tomorrow. This starts to become your source of rumination is that you're afraid you're not going to be able to sleep. And of course, what does that do? That interferes with going to sleep. So here's the directions to take. Um, by the way, also, if you notice yourself ruminating and catastrophizing about things, try to just say goodbye to today's issues. I mentioned this in one other podcast. Um, just see if you can like go over those issues of the day and say goodbye to them. Say, I'll see you tomorrow. Uh, I know you'll be here tomorrow. I know I'm going to have a chance to think about these things tomorrow. So you don't have to figure it all out tonight. See if you can let yourself uh, go. Now, what if you're calm, but you're still wide awake? You know, the recommendation for this is go to another room after that half hour or hour, and you're just laying there awake, and you're not especially anxious. You're not especially ruminating. You're, you're somehow, your brain and your body just won't let you go to sleep. So the recommendation, go, you know, to another room, another spot in the same room, read a book or do some other activity that doesn't further excite you, awaken you, get you digging into something. Um, and then when you get more sleepy, which you will eventually, and it may take longer than you wish, go back to bed. Lay down back now in the place to go to bed. You know, maybe if you're hungry, maybe have a light snack. But, you know, late, middle of the night eating, late night eating is very common, very easy, and it seems like something to do because when you're sleepy, uh, appetite gets screwed up. Um, but if you want something, have a very light snack because having a big snack can interfere with going back to sleep. Now, what if you're anxious or ruminating? What are you going to do? Well, one skill from the past uh, one podcast, it was the tip 
skill you using uh, temperature like cold water on your face your for your forehead the sides of your cheeks um, next to your eyes that whole area for a minute or so really cold water or or ice packs um, can uh, activate your parasympathetic nervous system and and start to slow down your heart and your breathing your metabolism and help you calm down and go to sleep uh, you could lie there and do paced breathing, breathing in four in-breaths, breathing out six out-breaths, slowing that down over time, and just do that for a while. Just focus on the breathing. You could do a sort of breathing meditation practice, like count breath by breath from nine down to zero, breathing in one or nine, breathing out nine, breathing in eight, breathing out eight, work your way down from nine to zero and then if you get all the way to zero go back up and start at eight and work your way down again from eight to zero and then seven to zero you know and can just continue to do that it's sort of like a mindful breathing equivalent of counting sheep and if counting sheep helps you that that's a good one um if you still keep ruminating you might just focus on your body sensations that underlie ruminating because rumination is often an escape from difficult emotional uh, sensations, including sensations of the body. See if you can just sort of like move beneath the ruminations, the content of the ruminations, and focus on your body. That can help sometimes. Um, if you're really having upsetting thoughts in the middle of the night, like I do sometimes, I wake up at 2.30, I wake up at 4.30, I'm thinking about things, and they see it there. When I look at them later in the day, they seem like they were kind of exaggerated. And it's what Linehan and other people have called middle-of-the-night thinking. And we're kind of not thinking very clearly, and we catastrophize about things. So if we can say in the middle of the night, okay, this is middle-of-the-night thinking, let me check this out after I have a, a night's sleep and I wake up tomorrow. Maybe that'll help. You might read an emotional, uh, emotionally engrossing novel for a few minutes, something to get your mind away from the rumination, but actually reading something that captures your attention for at least a few minutes until you feel more tired. Then stop reading and close your eyes and try to continue the novel or the story in your head rather than going back to ruminating. Uh, because maybe you'll be able to go to sleep with that story in your head better than your own rumination. Um, what else can you do if you're ruminating? Um, you know, you can, um, if you think the rumination is about something that needs to be taken care of, that you can take care of, then get out of bed and go take care of it uh, so that you end that rumination or do what you can about it. If it isn't solvable at that time, um, then you might consider another technique, which is to go deep into the worry, like you're worrying about yourself, your health, a kid, a friendship, uh, your parents, uh, whatever it is you're worried about. Go deep into the worry, like let yourself go into say, okay, what if that does happen? Okay, now what if that happens? Oh, okay, now what if that happens? And go all the way down to the catastrophic basis of the whole thing. And then imagine coping with the catastrophe, because if the catastrophe came, you'd have to cope with it. Um, so you might just go, go right to shit. It's like short-circuiting your rumination, going right down to what you're most deeply worried about. If nothing else works, Linehan puts this in her manual, 
with your eyes closed, listen to public radio. <laughs> I guess she has the idea that's boring. For some people, that might not be true. Um, and then I would say, finally, if all else fails, listen to one of my podcasts. That'll probably put you to sleep. Okay? So that's the model. That's sleep hygiene issues. I hope that just you grabbed hold of one of those or some of those if you're having trouble sleeping and try different things out. You know, make make this a project because it's just so damaging um, to you. Okay, on to the biggest topic. I have about a half, half of the time left, and this will be the last topic in emotion regulation. When you have an emotion in you, you know, you've gotten past the input stage and you're in the throughput stage where you are experiencing the emotion and you're having all the bodily components that are underlie or are part of an emotion, including the action urge. There you are now. How does one apply mindfulness uh, to this? And why is this uh, so useful? Um, Let me answer first. Let me just say an example, because uh, it's one of a million examples. But one thing you can do, one thing I do, I'll put it that way. Um, Let's say I'm having uh, an intense uh, emotion. I recently, during the Christmas holidays, I, I met up with somebody uh, who I haven't seen for years, and I feel very bad about having let this go on for this long without being in touch. And I was really anxious when I was going to see her, and I got all upset about it uh, and thinking, oh, no, and thinking uh, I didn't know how it was going to go. We hadn't really made contact. We had just made an email agreement to meet for lunch. And I was going in quite anxious and quite guilty because I could have been in touch and and without going into the circumstances or what the relationship is, it would have been my responsibility more than the other person to be in touch. So I felt bad. I wondered what had happened. And uh, I was a little caught up in that. So on I, I, when I went there, I, uh, I got into the parking lot of where I was going to be uh, seeing her. I thought... God, I want to bring this emotion. This emotion is like like a lot of emotions. They become a runaway train, right? And you're caught up in your emotion, and it sort of throws you over like a hurricane. And then you're caught up in it. And then if you just go on forward while you're that, it won't necessarily go away. I mean, just because you suppress it or just because you try to think of something different. Um, Not that those are always bad things to do, but... This is a very, this is taking your emotion head on, uh, cold turkey, so to speak, with it, but in a mindful way. So what I did was I just sat there in my car and I did, um, breathe, I just started to notice my breathing. I didn't do what I would call being mindful of my breathing in, in any intense way. I just started to notice, okay, I'm breathing in, I'm breathing out, okay, I'm breathing in other words, I brought my attention from where it had been, which is in an emotion, and dispersed all over the universe while I'm driving. Um, and so your your mind is often dispersed, caught in several stimulating inputs, right? And so this is just a way of saying, you know what? Let me start to let me start to uh, round up my all of my attention and bring it to my breathing. So I just, 
I do it four times. I just breathe in, breathe out, and using the breath as kind of the center point, almost like the breath is calling attention to the rest of me, uh, saying, hey guys, come on. And so I start paying attention, and by the time I've done that, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out four times, okay, now I'm a little sort of brought into focus of, okay, I'm, I'm, so I've circled around my breath. Now I do four more in-breaths and out-breaths counting, but I, in this time I do what's more mindful awareness of my breath. So what do I do? Breathing in, then I say to myself, I'm aware that I'm breathing in. While I, while I breathe in, I say, I'm aware I'm breathing in. Now while I breathe out, I'm aware I'm breathing out. Breathing in, I'm aware I'm breathing in. And by thinking those thoughts, it helps me gather my mind and bring my attention entirely to the breath, which means the sensations of the breath. The breath as I experience it moving through my nose or my throat or into my chest or into my, down into my belly. And I try to just relax and let it go deep into my belly or push into my belly. So, so I do breathing in, breathing out. I am aware, I'm aware, breathing in, breathing out. I'm aware, I'm aware. And after four of those, I find that things have changed. You know, So now I've done these eight conscious breaths, the second four of which are really like bringing attention to the awareness of breathing, which is different than just bringing attention to breathing. Now I'm breathing, bringing attention to the awareness of breathing. Okay, so now usually when I do that eight times, my mind is now circling around my awareness of my breath more than whatever else it was circling around before. I've established a little platform, you might say. I've, I've built some, you know, there's a lot of metaphors for this. I've generated, as Thich Nhat Hanh will talk about saying, generating mindful energy. You can, in a matter of a few breaths, generate mindful energy. In DBT, you might say that you're trying to cultivate wise mind. Just bring it. You could say you're just trying to become more present or more into the here and now. Whatever language you use, use language that works for you. And then you get to where after eight of these breaths, you're kind of, you've generated some mindful capacity. And now the question is, how do you use it if you've generated it? You want to harness that and direct it towards the emotion or emotions that you're experiencing. So here's where you make a shift from just mindfulness of the breath, which could be mindfulness of the body or mindfulness of sounds. You could use some other focus of attention for mindfulness, but the breath is a pretty reliable source. And so there you are. And now what I do is I continue to use the breath as my anchor point, breathing in. But now I say something different to myself. Breathing in, I'm aware of anxiety in my body. Breathing out, I'm aware of anxiety in my body. You don't need to use that language, by the way. You could just say, breathing in, aware of anxiety. Breathing out, I'm aware of anxiety. And maybe at some point while you're doing that, you might be able to do breathing in, I'm aware of anxiety. Breathing out, I let go of anxiety. Breathing in, I'm aware of anxiety. Breathing out, I let go of anxiety. And if you can just keep linking 
the awareness of the breath, which you've now cultivated, even though for a short time, and link that with directing your attention to the particular emotion. It might be breathing in, I'm aware of guilt. Breathing out, I'm aware of guilt. Breathing in, I'm aware of guilt. Breathing out, I'm aware of guilt. Now, why is this helpful? I mean, because it really is. It really can be helpful. I, I swear to God, it's just, it just helps me um, not avoid the guilt or the anger or the resentment or the sorrow or whatever it is. It helps me just be right there. It's like to shine a light right on the very thing that I'm afraid of the thing that's bringing me down, the thing that I'm worried about. I'm just gently but persistently illuminating that. And it isn't obvious why that would change anything, but it does almost every time. And if it doesn't, you can do it over a longer time or try it with different language or try it with a different focus of mindful awareness or something. But it's bringing together this capacity that the mind has to be mindful and what that does to the mind and the body in general and then bringing your emotion into that context integrating mindfulness with the emotion is just a very potent thing to do why is it potent another reason is that you is that you're not suppressing the emotion you're not pushing it out of consciousness. You're not pushing it out of mind. You're not shoving it down and smothering it. All of those things that you push down, you suppress, you hide from, you escape from, all of these things are treating emotions in a way that actually is a poor understanding of how emotions work. Emotions lurk. They hang around. And if you ignore them, the way you would ignore somebody knocking at your door at your apartment or your house that you don't want to hear from. Emotions are the kind of the kind of guests that don't go away. They keep knocking and then they knock at your back door and they look in the window and they're waiting and there they are and just when you least expect it they come and they grab hold of you. And so this is opening the door to your emotion and saying, "Okay, I've now just created a little mindful apartment here." I've now calmed down a little bit. I'm now illuminating my breath. And now please come in. I welcome you. And you invite in, you know, the intense negative emotion or the not so intense negative emotion. Um, and you, um, and in, in, in doing so, you're not suppressing. The problem with suppressing is that you entrap yourself in the emotion. You think you're getting rid of it, but actually you're sticking to it. You're creating yourself as a prisoner of the emotion by trying to make the emotion go away. It, they just work that way. It's that kind of animal. So one thing you're doing is you're not suppressing uh, an emotion. Another thing you're doing is allowing your mind, which is a pretty powerful resource, allowing your mind to keep aware and focusing on an emotion. And at first, the emotion might be, well, the first thing that the emotion brings up for you, it might be related to catastrophic thoughts or something. And then um, you keep 
paying attention to the emotion, then you might start to notice the body sensations or tensions or whatever in your body, in your breath, in your heart, in your legs, in your face that are associated with the emotion. And they really are the embers out of which the fire of emotion uh, flames. So you're really starting to expand your awareness of your emotion from the surface level into some of the more other aspects of the emotion. And you're noticing the thoughts associated with the emotion. In other words, the whole, in a way, you have to look at it for a while or allow it into your mindful awareness for a while for the whole emotion to come into view. And as it does, amazingly, it softens. It often softens and it changes. It just never stays the same. Of course, it might change anyway if you don't pay attention to it. I mean, it will in one way or another. But the problem is if you push it away, it often hardens it. And later you're going to need to let yourself feel it. So this is a way of deliberately inviting the emotion into your front door, into your living room, and sitting down and having a conversation with it and beginning to get to know it better. It's a little bit like dark clouds. You see a dark cloud in the sky and it blocks out the sun. And let's say the sun stands for hope. So you've got a dark cloud of some kind and, and, it, and, it'll, and it obliterates hope. And it also obliterates the sky. And the sky is this other big thing like the sun that's always up there beyond the clouds. But if you can't see the sky, the sky let's say the sky stands for perspective, big perspective, wise perspective, and the sun stands for hope. Now you've lost perspective and you've lost hope and you're darkened by this cloud and you think the cloud is a real thing and you think it's substantial and you think it has density and thickness to it and you think it's catastrophic sometimes and you're overwhelmed by the cloud. But actually, if you got in an airplane and flew right up into the cloud, as you probably have done at some point when you've flown somewhere, you go into a cloud that has looked very dark and ominous and you realize when you're in the middle of a cloud, say, oh, oh, this is the cloud. It's just made up of a lot, of, a lot more space than it looked like. It isn't as dense as I thought. There's a lot of spaces of just air here in the cloud. There's just atmosphere and there's droplets. There's water droplets. Um, and, and there's also lots of little other things probably that are even not easy to see. And um, there might be electrical tensions there that could, could actually make you feel it's a little dangerous. But, you know, you fly through clouds and you realize, you know, clouds are not quite what they look like from the ground when they're blocking out the sun and the sky. So emotions are not quite what they look like when they're darkening your sky and they're taking away your hope and they're eliminating your perspective. So if you just sort of stay with them and be mindful of them and keep saying to yourself, breathing in, I notice the anger that's in me. Breathing out, I notice anger is in me. And that's different than saying, by the way, I am anger. I am anger is a problem. And that's what we often get to is we start to feel we're just anger. We're one big ball of anger. But actually, if we say to ourselves, I notice that there's anger within me. I'm aware that anger's there. Breathing in, I notice anger passing through me. Then we highlight that we are something separate from, apart from our anger, our shame, our guilt, our sorrow, 
and fear and we and so we recognize okay i am a human being that's bigger than the clouds passing through me and i can actually do something about this for one thing there's lots of things that we've gone over earlier in talking about the model there's lots of things i could do about these things in previous uh podcasts i went over what it means to act opposite the emotional urge as a way to change from one emotion to another. And I went over problem solving uh, to try to problem solve what's causing the emotion. And I went over checking the facts about an emotion. And so there are those things. There are so many things you can do, self-soothing activities and distracting. But, you know, mindfulness is at the core of all of this. It's kind of like the core skill of emotion regulation because the more clear you get, the more you soften your emotion, the more you break your emotion and dissolve it down into its components and you're aware of the components, the more the emotion is not so much ominous and dark and substantial and taking over you, the more it's something that either it's passing through you or you are passing through. And it's just sort of, okay, this is emotions. And, you know, another good thing about being mindful of emotions is that it allows the emotion to find its place in your larger self. You, in a previous podcast, I went over what some of the functions, likely functions are of emotions, that they have functions. They're there for a reason. I mean, evolution uh, or God, depending on how you think of it, put emotions into us for a reason. They have functions, they have purposes. And when we get caught in an emotion, trapped in emotion, we try to block an emotion, we get imprisoned by an emotion, it gets dark and substantial and bigger than it really is, then we then it's no longer serving the original purpose of the emotion. It's now become a really a, a dark place, a burden, and it's really killing us. So if we just observe the emotion, we study the emotion, we let it break down a little bit, we let it soften a little bit, we hold it in ourselves without running off to the world and acting on it, uh, without pushing it away inside our consciousness or something. We just let it be the, with the, shine, the light of consciousness and awareness shine on it, and there it is. And you might start to let it find its place. You might even find that it transforms that actually the emotion that you were starting to look at. I had an emotion once of what I would call, oh gosh, it was a mean emotion that I had. I'm, I, at the time I thought of it, once I realized it, and I felt sort of bad about it, was condescension. I was thinking in a condescending way towards another person, a member of my extended family. And I had this a way of thinking about him and, and feeling towards him that kind of put him down and put me up. Um, and so as I noticed that and as I let myself just shine awareness on, let me just stop and let myself think about this. I thought about it. I thought about it. There wasn't any strategy about how I thought about it. There's no rocket science necessarily to this. It really is just the brain of awareness is so smart itself that if you just give it time and space and keep noticing something, you know, what came to me is that the condescension faded away, kind of like evaporated in the light of the awareness. But what came into it into place was probably the primary emotion that was under it was 
anger at this person and jealousy towards this person. This was somebody in my extended family that, you know, I think I probably felt got more or something better than I got in life. And I had this kind of jealousy or, uh, or envy. Uh, I'm not going to go over the distinction of that, but it probably had elements of both. And, um, and so I realized, oh, that's actually now what I'm feeling. I, you know, 10 minutes ago, I was feeling dismissing and mean and condescending and putting this person down and superiorizing me, if there's such a word. But now I'm realizing I'm jealous of this person from childhood and I'm angry at this person. And then I started to just let myself notice that and notice the anger. And the more I just let myself think about that situation, it was a cousin of mine, that I realized, you know what? The circumstances of his life were totally different than mine. And, and there were elements of his life that actually I was not uh, envious of. And I thought, you know, it just gradually came into perspective, and it didn't totally take away that feeling, but it, it sort of more brought the feeling down to size, down to a normal size, where, okay, all right, so I have some jealousy, some envy. Envy has an action urge associated with it, you know, it can lead you to decide, you know, I'm going to try to get what I think is so great that that other person has. And rather than stealing it and rather than beating myself up or him up about it, I could actually, how about if I just decide to go after what I want in my life? And that could be an action urge I could then act on. So that could be a function of envy is to try to get for yourself something that you think someone else has that you wish you had. Um, and that could be a healthy outcome. So, you know, so another valuable thing about becoming mindful of your emotions is that it allows emotions to, uh, I don't know, come down to a more human size and shape and function as the sort of intention. It's sort of like let emotions be. Let emotions do what emotions do. They actually have functions. And if we weren't so afraid of them, if we didn't fight them, if we didn't blow them away, if we weren't sort of terrified of what they mean when we get an emotion, um, and if we are terrified, it's probably based on some past experiences that we make meaning out of having a certain emotion. Then it just becomes, you know, some bodily, some bodily processes and bodily sensations and some awareness of things and some associated thoughts um, that we can work with. It, it brings it down to size. So... That's sort of another another thing. Um, I I'll just say one more thing because I have about five minutes left. I find uh, mindfulness of emotions for me is helped by certain metaphors. One is a metaphor in the skills manual that Linehan uses and has used a lot, uh, and it turns into a particular skill. And it's the metaphor that when we have emotions passing through us, it's like waves in the ocean. And if we could just think of it like that, we're like, let's say you were standing waist deep or chest deep at an ocean and you could feel waves, but the waves aren't big enough yet to throw you over. Um, you just, you could feel the waves and you could fight against them, etc. But actually, you could just feel the waves passing through across your body. And that, that would be like feeling your emotions as waves. Because they usually do come as waves. They don't usually come and be solid and stay the same all the time. They let up a little bit or they change a little bit. So 
let yourself experience emotions like a waves. And the other way to work with that metaphor is to have an imaginary uh, uh, surfing ride over your emotion. Let's say you've got anger going. You know, surf the anger. Imagine your, close your eyes and imagine yourself on a surfboard and anger's coming up and you're going to be a skillful surfer uh, and you ride the anger until it crashes against the shore. You know, and you go, you maybe go for a long time riding the anger. And that means you don't get uh, immersed and destroyed by the anger or turned upside down by the anger. You're riding the anger. And you can experience anger at the same time as not having it take you over. So that's one metaphor is the, the waves. Another metaphor I brought up is clouds. I find that really helpful is to think that, that uh, emotions are like clouds passing through the sky. Once again, like waves, they are temporary phenomena. They're impermanent. And that's true of emotions too. And they're made up of lots of parts. And that's true of emotions too. And they're less substantial when you get inside them than they seem uh, from the outside. And that's sort of true of emotions too. Once you get into them, you realize, oh, okay, okay. My heart is heavy. My stomach is a little sore. You know, I'm sad. Um, I'm feeling like withdrawing. I'm feeling like uh, a little tearful in my face, my eyes. Um, and 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 I'm and once you realize those are the things I'm actually feeling. Those are the real thing. That's like the real news. Um, if you if you get carried away with oh now I'm in sorrow and I'm always going to be in sorrow you add that thought to it or I've always been in sorrow or why am I always in sorrow you know you get into that and it turns it into something that's larger like like a stereotype um, and it, and it's more it's harder to live with that so you want to soften it third metaphor fire and it brings up a different of uh, matter for me. When you think of a fire, a fire comes about because it has the causes and conditions that lead to a fire. It's a little bit like the vulnerability factors that I was talking about when I talked about the model. You've got all these things. You know, there's enough kindling, there's enough firewood around or things that'll burn. And so you, and, and a fire comes into being when a spark happens in the context of uh, the conditions that would support a fire. And um, that's a little bit like an, an emotion. Emotion comes into being when there are conditions that would support that emotion. And if it's going to be an intense emotion, it might be that some of those vulnerability factors are active, making it more intense or making it harder to control. And so um, you've got uh, these conditions that support a fire, and then you've got the uh, spark which is the prompting event, the trigger that, that sets off the emotion. Now the emotion's going. Now the emotion, just like a fire, will only keep going if it continues to have the conditions that support it. So if, you're, if you keep your head about you and you're thinking, oh my God, I keep being angry or I keep being so ashamed or I keep being so guilty, you know, there's some kind of conditions that are going on that are supporting that. Some of them might be the physiological conditions that are, have to do with the vulnerability factors. Some might be ideas that you have that keep circulating around in you. And the, every time you're ready to let go of an emotion, you, you once again go back over some thought. about, And that thought is a thought that re-triggers re the emotion because emotions do flare up 
But if they aren't continuing to be fed the conditions that support them, like certain thoughts, certain actions, encountering certain prompting events that keep firing it again and again and again, you know, it's going to come, it's going to peak uh, at a certain level of flaming up, and then it's going to fade. And if you can let it come, let it burn, let it, you know, pass through you, and not keep feeding it with uh, triggering thoughts, triggering uh, prompting events, uh, or or acting on it in ways that keep convincing the brain that you should keep feeling that feeling. You know, that's a trickier one, but I don't have time to explain that. Okay, so those three metaphors: fire, clouds, waves. Uh, I find very helpful when I'm doing mindfulness of emotions. I hope this was helpful. And I hope you have a great 2019. Uh, keep letting me hear from you. It really informs me about what helps, what you like hearing about. And, uh, and I'll be back on January 23rd to begin talking about um, being effective in relationships and change your relationships. So look forward to that. Okay, everyone. Bye.